Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a pathologist helps us make sense of a pathology report. When it becomes a little bit longer and confusing is when it is a cancer case because from there we have to develop what's called a synoptic report. A registered dietitian nutritionist helps us understand the benefits of milk and its multitude of alternatives. Now we have things, we have hemp milk, we have oatmeal milk, we have potato milk, we have cashew milk, we have so many, there's a lot of alternatives out there. And a speech-language pathologist tells how communication devices are helping patients with Lou Gehrig's disease. Tablets are so much more socially acceptable, too, so a lot of people find that they have a little bit easier time carrying around an iPad and using and being on it and using that out in public compared to a larger communication device. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air. Your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, explore milk and milk alternatives with a registered dietitian nutritionist. Then we'll hear from a speech-language pathologist about how communication is improving for patients who have Lou Gehrig's disease. But first, We'll go over a typical pathology report with a pathologist who enjoys helping patients understand their reports. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Have you ever had a biopsy or surgical procedure in which tissue was sent to the laboratory for analysis and then you tried to read the pathology report? If you didn't go to medical school, understanding the report may be difficult. So with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is Dr. Rowan Mehta, a pathologist at Upstate who's a medical director of pathology and clinical pathology for the community campus. Welcome, Dr. Mehta. Hi, good morning. So, Dr. Mehta, you're a bit unusual among pathologists because you've started offering to meet with breast cancer patients who want help understanding their pathology reports. So tell us how that got started and why you're doing it. So I, um, <clears throat> I read this article in a pathology journal some time ago that had stated in so out in Michigan where patients um, came to a pathologist and wanted to know about their report. Um, and um, I decided that this was something that patients are not privy to most of the time, but they obviously, it dictates most of their treatments and et cetera, et cetera. So decided to start this at Upstate with um, two of the breast surgeons at the community campus I felt that the um, the breast cancer survivor patients have this camaraderie um, that they they Google their their diagnosis, they try to figure out what's going on, and all the the jargon in the pathology report. So I decided maybe this would be something that they'd like to to do. So when the first patient came in, um, I just wanted to see how you know feel it out, see exactly how they responded to it. And the response was great. She said that it helped her wrap her head around her diagnosis and see exactly what's inside of her, what we're trying to, as she put it, the little buggers trying to get out of her. So the pathology report, let's, tell me, tell me what that is, where it comes from. If a person has a biopsy or the tissue goes to the lab, the person in the lab writes a report about what they find? So what happens is we get the, the tissue from the patient, whether it's tissue or if it's cells from a cytology um, procedure, and we process the specimen and we produce um, a slide that we uh, observe under the microscope. Um, so and this is how we uh, generate a pathology report based on what we see under the, the microscope, uh, whether it's benign, whether it's malignant. So the report itself is, is based on when you read the report, it has different sections of it. And again, it can be quite intimidating for the patient when they read it, because as you stated before, there are all these these um, semantics in it that they don't understand. All these medical terms. Exactly. And- mm-hmm. So we start off with what's called a gross description, and this is when the patient sees it. This is what it looks the specimen looks like to the naked eye. Does it look bloody? Does it look um, dead? Does it look viable, which means is it alive? And, um, and usually for biopsies, it's a pretty short gross description. It's a very small specimen. When the gross description comes into play um, for all of us when it's a cancer resection, because then we have to worry about margins and taking different parts. For instance, if it's a, a lobectomy or taking out somebody's part of their lung, we need to discuss margins and how the tumor looks. Um, and, and margins are just the edges? Correct. Around. Margins are the edges that the surgeon wants to get around to make sure that the tumor is clear in that area. 
Does a patient automatically receive a pathology report? So I think recently, because of these medical portals, patients are able to log on, get their blood work, get their pathology report. So they can, but back in the day, they did not. And now patients are becoming more involved in their treatment. Um, they want to take their reports and go to different clinicians and get second opinions. So they're, they are starting to ask for them, yes. And it might um, be surprising to someone that the doctor that they go see um, isn't the only doctor involved in their care, that there's someone like yourself, a pathologist, who makes the diagnosis and helps guide the treatment plan. And, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's weird. It's, obviously, it's a big a multidisciplinary team strategy. Um, and the pathologist is usually, if, if ever, sees the patient. They're mostly behind the scenes. But we work in... in cahoots with all the other clinicians to, to treat the patient and make the diagnosis. So tell me briefly, what is your background to become a pathologist? You, so go, to, should, you go to medical school. Yes, ma'am. You go to me- do everything else. You go to medical school and then you do a residency. Um, it's usually four years long. And then you do a subspecialty if you choose to, a fellowship, whether it be in cytopathology, blood banking, heme, heme pathology, et cetera. So I, uh, I went into pathology because my mother's a pathologist. So I kind of followed in her footsteps and did a couple of fellowships after that. Neat. Well, you can't meet individually with all of our listeners. So I want to ask you, you said that um, a pathology report generally begins with a gross description, but what what more is there after that? So after the gross description, the, the main thing that everyone looks for is, is a diagnosis section, which states, um, has a lot of information there depending on what was it something benign? Is it something malignant? When it becomes a little bit longer and confusion, confusing is when um, there, it is a cancer case because from there we have to develop what's called a synoptic report. Synoptic report is um, usually in cancer resection specimens where we give information to the clinician about what, um, it, you know, without getting into this, um, the details of it, the you know, the staging of the tumor, how large it is, if it's um, the differentiation of it, which has to do with, does it look like the normal cells or does it look malignant? And from there, we we stage it. Um, and when the patient looks at it, there's a stage at the bottom, if it's a T1, T2, T3, which has to do with the size sometimes or um, how poorly differentiated it is. So the diagnosis may have that all written in there. It does. Usually we keep that very concise and we say, look at the synoptic report. Um, so it's, you know, depending, again, but if you have like an appendix taken out, all we may just say is acute appendicitis and that's it. Uh, we also have a section called a microscopic description where we, the details how the specimen looks under the microscope compared to the normal cells around it. And that's usually for pathologists. Some clinicians like to look at that as well. We can convey information about the procedure. For instance, if they're saying they see a mass and we're not seeing anything under in, in the slide that looks malignant, we could say, you know, this may not represent um, the targeted lesion, for instance. And do you say what um, what what you find inside the mass, whether it's made up of absolutely. Whatever. So if it's something if it's something malignant, we'll say you know malignant. But that's usually in the diagnostic line as well. Mm-hmm. Is a patient going to be able to look at the diagnosis and know whether it's good or bad? See, well, if it says in uh, carcinoma, they they should be able to. And this is why I would like to tell when patients come to see me when the consult, I tell them, you know, try to stay off the internet and start Googling things because this can lead you down the rabbit hole. This, you know, you, you don't understand some of the information and then you start, you know, you try to wrap your head around it. It gets a little, gets a little scary. So what I suggest is if you don't, when you get your pathology report, circle things you don't understand, so, you know, and then bring this to whomever you see, your, your surgeon, your oncologist, et cetera, and say, you know, I don't understand what these terms mean. Can you explain this to me? Because you know, those are the professions, professionals who knows what, what, what these terminology means. You start Googling things and going on these forums, that can not be a good idea. Well, that's, and, and if you don't have, even if you have a medical dictionary, it, it may be hard to understand the dictionary Absolutely. definition, too. Mm-hmm. So uh, what should a patient um, look for? Are there any red flags that they should be kind of on the lookout for in a pathology report? Um, well, yeah, I mean, the red flags, sometimes actually some uh, pathology reports, if it's something malignant, they put it in red, actually. So it's funny really? to say that, yeah, it's well, actually in red. So it kind of triggers that this is something um, that's malignant. Um, but, you know, usually the terminology, um, carcinoma, sarcoma, these are the... Um, 
the terminology that use it, that means it's something bad. Are there pictures in a lab report? Um, for we used to have surgical pictures in the report, but we've decided to take those out because sometimes it just it makes the report look a little um, jumbled. And most people looking at it wouldn't. And most people looking at it wouldn't know what it is either. So especially for the patients. But now, like I was going back to this um, consult service, the patients come in and they see it, and I think sometimes that's actually some of them think it's it's cool to look at. I mean, I mean, I mean, obviously it's not something cool for the patient, but they look at it and they, um, they can, like I said before, wrap their head around it. What's what's inside of them? Because when you hear the c word, it's kind of hard to know exactly what it is, you know. So just well, really, especially if you can't feel it in you know in your body, you can't feel it. It's hard to conceptualize it. Exactly. Yeah. So being able to visualize it, I think, helps. Now, do you think it's important for patients to look look for their pathology report and try to read it? I do, and I, I think again in this day and age of people getting on the internet, um, and you know, when you get the diagnosis, they go back and and search for it, you know, looking at your report can maybe help you not, again, go down this hole where you think it's something else that it may not be, and that could be dangerous. And being and being informed, and it kind of empowers the patient. They can go to their clinician and say, yeah, I know I read this report, this is what I think, um, what I know, and this is what I've read about, can you explain it to me more instead of, because they're scared. And, you know, and being able to have some knowledge about something that's inside of you would, would definitely helps them to deal with it. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Rowan Mehta. He's the Medical Director of Pathology and Clinical Pathology for Upstate's Community Campus. So I have some phrases that I pulled from a surgical pathology report um, from a patient that was diagnosed with a breast cancer, and there's a lot on it that I circled that I didn't understand. So let me let me walk you through some of these. Um, it says the malignant neoplasm was taken out of the patient at 1305 so that's military time. That's is correct. that standard to use? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. And then um, it says it was placed in formalin at thirteen thirteen. What's formalin? So formalin is a fixative that we use when we put tissue comes out of the patient fresh, and then we need to fix it so it doesn't deteriorate. So we put it in formalin, and that's a, a fixative. And being able to document the time that it's put in formalin is, is important because some of the subsequent ancillary tests that we order is is um, based on how long it's been informed. For instance, for breast cancer, we order receptor statuses. So we need to have the tissue placed in formalin for a certain amount of time for the make sure that the antibodies for the receptors work. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, under the diagnosis section, it says sentinel lymph nodes, left axilla excision. Now, left axilla is the armpit. Yes, right? correct, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, then it says Breast left one o'clock excision. What is one o'clock? So one o'clock, when if you look at the breast and you make it as the face of a clock, it's pretty much exactly what it is. It's the one o'clock position. They took this uh, piece of tissue out at the one o'clock position where the lesion was. Oh, so that's just kind of geographic. Geographic, exactly. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, it describes the tumor size, and then it gives a histologic type and a histologic grade. What What are those? So when we do, when we grade a tumor, um, we graded on how it recapitulates the normal tissue. So for instance, if you have normal breast parenchyma and you have a, a grade two, it would be worse than a grade one. So it'll look worse. It wouldn't look like a normal a breast parenchyma. That's trying to put it in very layman's terms. We, okay. we use a lot of other factors in the mitoses and nuclear pleomorphism. Yeah, mitoses was another one that I saw I was going to ask you about. So we use mitoses for breast cancer in specific how to grade. So we use three different terms: um, the tumor uh, pleomorphism, mitoses, and um, tubule formation. So, so mitoses is that the cells dividing? That's exactly what it is. Okay. Cells are dividing, so we can actually see the, the the mitoses within the cell, and we count it in different fields to get an idea of how proliferation it is, like how fast it's exactly. growing and things. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then pleomorphism, what is what is that? Pleomorphism is where a cell looks pretty much bad. So again, if it recapitulates to normal cell, that wouldn't be very pleomorphic. But if it looks something completely different and it doesn't belong there, that is considered a pleomorphic cell. So what you're describing is, I mean, this is stuff that a, a doctor during a, a, an exam in the, in the room, there's no way for them to 
learn this. No, not at all. Yeah, I mean, that's why they really rely on the pathologist to, to include this information in the report. I mean, they, they know what it is. It's just a matter of them, they can't see it because they obviously right. don't have the tissue themselves. Now, there's something called um, tumor focality. Yes, correct. So if there, if there is numerous lesions, that would be considered multifocal. Um, if it's many, a, many spots, many, many different tumors, spots, or? exactly. Yeah, and if it's a single focus of tumor, it's a focalis, one focus. And these are all things that are in the synoptic report that the oncologist will use in order to determine a certain treatment algorithm that they'll go down. Um, I see the words macro metastasis and micro metastasis, and metastasis means spreading. That's correct, right? yes. So what is macro and micro? So when we have a tumor that's spread from the, in, in, with the breast, goes into the lymph node, we have to do a, let the clinician know, is it a micrometastasis, which has to do with the size criteria, um, less than two millimeters, versus a macrometastasis that is a completely encompassed a whole um, lymph node. So that sort of gives you an idea of... Uh, how far again, it's gone. how far it's... Okay. Mm-hmm. And then um, TNM descriptors. What is that? So this is what we use for the staging. The TNM system is used for... The T is the tumor size, and the N is the nodal status of the patient as it's spread to the nodes, and the M is, are there any metastatic disease anywhere? So, Oh, so it sort of uh, pulls together. Exactly, pulls everything together. Okay. And based on that, they, we have a stage that we give to the, to the patient of the tumor itself. Well, other than things that just um, sort of uh, are confusing to the patient, is there anything that you think a patient should um, ask their doctor or a pathologist about when they get a report? Yeah, again, I said, if you don't know, when you get your report... I mean, do your due diligence. This is about you. So circle things you don't understand. Again, I'd I, I be very hesitant to go online and just Google things like that. But, you know, circle things you don't understand and be informed. Um, and then when you go in to see your clinician, ask them questions. Don't, don't feel afraid to ask questions because, again, this is everything going on in you. And you feel more empowered and you feel you have a better grasp on it and less anxiety, at least what I've heard from different people, once they have an idea of what, what the report is all about. And there have been incidents where things have been overlooked in a report, right? Absolutely. I mean, so. and usually it does not happen. But then also don't feel afraid to get a second opinion from pathology reports. I mean, a lot of people do that. If you feel that something is missing after you do your due diligence when looking at it, you know, you can ask for a second opinion. Well, this has been a lot of good information. I appreciate you. you being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. My guest has been Upstate Pathologist, Dr. Rowan Mehta. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, milk and milk alternatives. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Milk is the primary source of nutrition for infant mammals before they're able to digest other types of foods. But many humans keep drinking milk their whole lives, and it seems like we have more milk choices than ever before. Here to help us make sense of the options for milk is registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Maureen. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Growing up, I don't remember milk coming from anything other than a cow. But today, there's many different types of milks. Um, Before we get into them for comparison, I wanted to ask you about the nutrition that we get from the traditional dairy product milk. Okay, so it tends to seem that all these, quote, milk beverages, or whatever you want to title them, tend to use milk as their standard. So when we're looking at milk, an average cup has about eight grams of good high-quality protein. It's a great source of calcium, all right, which is another thing in terms of bone health, and we've talked about that. Um, It's a good source of potassium, if it's something you're looking for as a potassium source. So, and there's no... A concern sometimes people have when they do the sugars, a lot of people say, oh, this has added sugars. Well, that 12 to 13 grams is natural sugar. It's a lactose. So 
it's a beautiful package. It's all ready and ready to go. Good bioavailability, as we say, in terms of your body being able to typically digest it unless you have something in terms of a lactose intolerance. So I think that's one thing people want to look at. Why are they switching from milk and why are they going to what I would more classify as an alternative? Okay. Now, I've, I've always heard calcium, the milk with the calcium helps to build bones. Is that only for developing kids or does that help adults? Adults. You know, when we talk about osteoporosis and people with osteoporosis, we still need a basic amount of calcium in our diet, no matter how old we are, you know, what age we are, what activity level. So that's an important feature. And I think one of the things I know we'll talk about is a lot of these products tend to have to add calcium back into the product. Now, I know pediatricians, uh, I believe they're still saying that most kids up to age two need whole milk, Mm -hmm. but then there's 1%, 2% skim. Is that just a difference of fat content? Typically, yes. Okay. So what you're doing is the whole milk in terms of for children, we know that they need that in terms of, you know, growth, brain development. Um, After that, we're looking at do where are we getting our other sources of good types of fats? So whole milk tends to be a higher amount of whole milk, and that's why it's called whole milk. Um, then you go down to 2%, so it's about cut in half. That's the 2% label in terms of it. As you go down the ladder in terms of 1% skim, you're getting lower and lower in terms of the fat content. You're not changing the quality of the carbohydrates. You're not changing the protein. You're basically not changing the calcium. You know, people might qualify that and say, oh, well, this has 302 versus this has 298. It's a relative number. Okay. So the main, you're right, the main thing is you're going down in terms of the types of the amount of fat in that milk product. Are there any downsides nutritionally to drinking milk your whole life? I mean, we, we think of milk with kids, you know, drinking milk at meal time and things like that. But should adults still be drinking milk? I think it's a great easy source in terms of you've got a blend of carbs, proteins, um, you can have low fat, you get calcium in it. I think it's a great thing unless you're having any kind of concern in terms of like a lactose problem. And then people probably need to look towards a source in terms of where they can digest it from that lactose. So that's what I want to talk about. What is there for people who can't tolerate dairy or vegans who don't eat animal products mm-hmm. and or people who just don't like the taste of regular milk what there's a lot out there so. now there is a number of products that used to be okay we had lactose reduced milk or a milk that had the lactase enzyme so people with lactose problems there was a very limited soy milk is probably the one that's been around the longest in terms of milk alternatives or non-dairy beverages whatever title you'd like to use soy milk's been around for a while now soy milk is a lot of competition because then the next baby that came in was almond milk Now we have things, we have hemp milk, we have oatmeal milk, we have potato milk, we have cashew milk. We have so many, again, they call them milks. Um, So there's a lot of alternatives out there. So they're called milks, but they have nothing, they're not, they don't come from cows, they're not a dairy product. Okay, so let's take them one by one. Um, The non-dairy alternative soy milk. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, how does that compare? What is it? Is the taste similar? The taste is very similar in terms of it. Um, the protein content is very similar in terms of it. It's roughly about the same eight grams of protein per cup, which is similar to what your milk is. Um, it's often fortified um, with calcium and different vitamins. Some people might get concerned about GMOs. Most of the ones use non-GMO ingredients in terms of it. What? But this let me, is let me oh, st- sorry. What's GMO. <laughs> Uh, genetically modified organisms, which people have a concern in terms of where is that food product coming from? Is it coming from a non-GMO or a GMO? Another topic. <laughs> okay. All righty. <laughs> a hot topic. Um, so soy milk probably is the one that's been, as I say, around the most, probably the most recognizable at this point. Uh, not something that people don't go, oh, what's soy milk? Pretty much everybody's heard of soy milk. All right. And people may be drinking it because they... Uh well, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, they might want a plant-based thing. They might not like the taste of milk, as you said. Um, they might have a lactose intolerant. Um, it just it could be curiosity in terms of it. I think one of the concerns, and I know we're going to talk about, but something like almond milk became like the new thing for people to use. So I think that's something that people need to think about. Are if you using a- almond milk? What's your purpose for it? Because when I look at almond milk, if I'm looking at it from a nutritional standpoint, it has probably about one gram of protein per cup. And I'm thinking, okay, if I'm going to put something and I'm going to drink it, 
I'd like to get a little bit more benefit out of it. But there are people there who love almond milk. Um, it tends to be expensive. It can be at times. And there's so many varieties. I think that's a concern, too. you got to look at why are you using this milk. I think people are using I, I know people use them in uh, protein shakes and mm-hmm. things like that. But you're saying it's lower in protein. It's lower in protein. So if you're trying to do a protein shake and you're looking for a good level of protein, why not get it from a natural source rather than have to pay somebody to put protein in your protein shake? I mean, you could still put some protein, but you've got eight grams in a cup of milk and you could add less protein shakes and stretch your money a little bit. Um, That's one of the things I think people don't think about. So that's a nut base. There's almond, there's cashew, there's peanut milk. There's a new peanut one out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm imagining people with nut allergies have to steer clear of these. I have a son Um, who has nut allergies and I see these products and I think, ah, because sometimes you don't realize that with those kinds of things, um, it's like, oh, we're going to do cashews, we're going to do hazelnuts, we're going to do peanuts in terms of then our company is going to start using those milks in their product. And then what's the concern for people with nut allergies? So maybe somebody who is going more vegetarian wants to go more towards the nut base. But on the other side, we have the people with the nut allergies that have to be extremely careful because it could be in something and you don't, and not unless know. you read that label and you're careful, you could be getting a peanut milk or something. Um, so do these nut-based milks, do they have more fiber in them? Everything tends to be added back into these milks. So when you look at something and people go, oh, well, see, this has more calcium in the milk. Well, it wasn't there originally. They had to add a lot of these products, a lot of these vitamins and minerals back into these products. They have to add calcium a lot of times. They have to add um, vitamins, B12, whatever that company is kind of tooting as far as that goes. Because basically what they're doing is they're crushing the nuts or the almonds or everything, adding water. And especially with the almond milk and the other nut, they all that pulp where the protein and the good fiber and things are, that's extracted. Wow. That's yeah. the nutritional part. Yeah, so it's like, okay, we took all that out. Now we have to put some of that back in so people think, oh, this is great because it's a high calcium product. Hmm. But some products are already there that had it. Okay. Let's move on to grain-based. So there's oat milk, there's rice milk. Yep. So oat milk, again, a relatively new one. It could have a little bit higher fiber, okay, because of the oats. But again, Question, do I want to drink my fiber or would I rather get it from a bowl of oatmeal with maybe some fresh blueberries on it? Personal question in terms of it. Again, why are you using that? Um, What are you using it for? And what are you looking for as far as the nutritional value? If it's looking for fiber, there's other ways to get fiber. Um, Rice milk, again, that tends to be the one that people with a lot of allergies would look at. So that can be one that people can use it for that purpose. But again, if you're looking at rice milk, the base is brown rice, all right, higher in carbs. So if I'm looking at it from another standpoint in terms of diabetes, and I'm looking at carbs, but I think, oh, I'm getting this, you have to be aware of what's in that rice milk. Okay. Well, that's that's good to know. What What is the taste like? Oat, it doesn't sound appetizing. I haven't tasted the oat milk yet. I tasted the nut milks um, last year. And I did not like them. I was like, whoa, these, to me, they had a terrible taste. They're thin. They were thin and just not a pleasant taste for me. As far as the price, when I was looking at it last year, it was pretty high priced in terms of it and not the best taste. So if you're looking for a, something that'll taste like milk, those, these not do not necessarily taste like Again, milk. Again, something now the companies then start changing it. So almond milk unsweetened, some people can tolerate. Other want sweetened, so it has a little bit sweeter taste. So again, it's more palatable for them. And they're like, so oh, they're, this isn't so bad. So they add things to it. So they're adding sugar to it. Yes. Okay. And that's the other thing you want to look at all these. Are they adding sugar? You know, I have a an example here. We showed the chocolate almond milk. Well, unsweetened almond milk is going to taste totally different than your chocolate-flavored almond milk. And it's going to have a different nutritional balance to it because they had to add things to it. Okay. What about legume-based? So that's the new one up here, the pea. It's um, with the pea protein, which is very comparable in terms of the calcium, um, excuse me, the protein of milk. Only one manufacturer at this point has this pea protein. Supposedly, there's another one working on it to come into it. So again, it's a legume base. That's a good one in terms of it. If people are have any concerns in terms of allergies, those kinds of things. Um, tends to be close. Um, I have a, a co-worker at work that uses it, uh, likes the taste of it, creamy type thing that they say in terms of it. Um, so that's, again, 
probably a better alternative than some of these nut beverages, I would think, because again, you're you're getting a better balance in terms of that nutritional qualities. And then they're seed-based. Yep. The seed-based, the hemp, there's hemp milk coming out, there's flax milk coming out. I personally haven't tasted those, but again, we're getting on the bandwagon. So hemp, flax, all the different seeds. I I, I don't doubt we'll probably see a chia seed milk before we before we can even wow. bat an eye. <laughs> um, coconut milk? I've seen so, that too. Yeah, coconut milk. So coconut milk in the original form is made, it's a grated and squeezed coconut meat. It's usually reserved for cooking. Um, what happens then they take and make it for a coconut milk beverage that people can use for drinking. So again, there's some concern with that, not much high in terms of uh, protein qualities, usually fortified with vitamin D, calcium. It can be a source of saturated fat. Again, there's some debate on that in terms of the availability and what's happening within that saturated fat. But as dietitians, we look still look at it. It's a source of saturated fat. Again, figure it in in terms of your whole intake and what you're doing in terms of your diet. All of these alternatives we've talked about, are any of them more nutritious than milk? Some of them in the, can be, when you look at some of them, they can be higher than milk in terms of calcium. Um, they could be higher maybe in terms of a certain vitamin, but it really depends on what that manufacturer has chosen to add to that product in terms of it. But as I say, I think they're tending to use milk as kind of the standard of looking at it. So if you're looking at some of the products, I know some of the almond milks out there will say, oh, this has 45% of your calcium intake, which is great. You are getting a good amount of it. So if you're looking at that alternative for a calcium source, good source. If you're looking at it for a protein, no. So it depends what are you as a consumer looking at that product for. And I also think, what are you willing to spend? Because a lot of these may cost more than They might definitely milk. cost more. Now, um, can you use them all for baking like you would with milk? You have to be careful because, again, you're dealing with a different type of beverage. So, again, I would use any manufacturer's guidelines in terms of that. Because um, if you're going to experiment, you might come out with a different quality product. Gonna, okay. Um, what about, do they all need refrigeration? As far, I think once you open them, yes. I know that the nut-based ones, once until they weren't open, they were okay sitting on the shelf. Um, so then after that, yes. And you do need to shake a lot of them because a lot of them have calcium added to it. So it might settle at the bottom of your container. So make sure you're shaking it. So if you're getting whatever product, you want to make sure you're getting it all in, in your quantity that you're using. Now, you've mentioned how important it is for people to sort of read the label. Are the nutrition labels for all of these products the same traditional label that we're used to seeing? Well, that's a concern because with the new labeling, again, I don't know if consumers have noticed, I'm starting to see new labels and I'm seeing some of the old labels. So some of the companies are still dealing with the old label and they haven't switched to the new label. One of the new label changes is potassium, which I think is a very important thing for people, especially um, some of the patients that we deal with. So looking at the potassium, you might see it on some products. It might not yet be on some products. So I always tell people, if you have any question in terms of that, call the manufacturer. They're in the process of getting those new labels ready. So that's why they have that information. They might not, it might not stop be in that package at this point. Or maybe online on the manufacturer's yep, website. Go in or terms something. of it, go to the PDF, um, put the company in and get their updated nutrition information, I think is very important. Well, it seems like you have to do really some investigating if you're wanting to switch over to yes, some, one of these. Yes, I think things. so. Just as in any kind of product or anything, just because it's the new thing out there. You need to ask those questions. Why am I using it? What am I willing to spend? Um, what do I want as far as taste? Um, my one big thing is it always goes back to taste. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, just because your neighbor is using almond milk or someone's telling you it's healthy, why do you want to use it? What are your concerns in terms of it? Well, good information. This has been very informative. Thank you so much. Thank you. My guest has been Maureen Franklin, registered dietitian nutritionist from Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, communication for patients with ALS. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. 
For people who have a disease such as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, losing the ability to speak can be frustrating and emotionally devastating, but technology today is offering ways to maintain communication so that a person still has some independence. In the HealthLink on Air studio to talk about these options is speech-language pathologist Jenna Gardner. Welcome, Jenna. Hi, thank you. Let's start with some background on what ALS is and how it affects communication. It stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis? Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, yes. So what is that? So ALS can affect people in several different ways. Um, We talk about it it being either a ball bar onset or spinal onset, and sometimes it can be both. So ball bar means that it's going to affect their speech and swallowing primarily. Spinal is going to see, you're going to see more of a limb onset, so arms and legs and body weakness. So depending on where it starts. Yep. And some people can have one or the other or both. And it's um, an, it's so neurodegenerative. It affects yes. the nerve cells. Yep, it's a motor neuron disease. So how that affects communication is that most of these patients who are diagnosed with that uh, with ALS don't have changes necessarily in their language. So their ability to think of what they want to say or understand what people are saying, but it affects their motor speech. So they can't actually formulate words. So, so they're just, essentially trapped in their body, okay. knowing what they want to say, but can't. Now, from what I understand, we don't know what causes it. Some There's some inheritability, but... There's a small familiar um, component to ALS, but most of it is what they call sporadic. So, And they call it Lou Gehrig's disease because of the famous baseball player that yes. yep. was, had the diagnosis. Now, what happens as the disease progresses? Does It gets worse, right? It does. Yep. Um uh, when you're diagnosed, you know, life expectancy can vary across people, but oftentimes we see that when patients lose their ability to safely swallow, that um, things can progress a little bit faster because they don't have the ability to protect their airway from food or liquid going down the wrong way and even manage their saliva. So the patients who lose that speech and swallow component, um, you know, sometimes we... Um, see that progression go a little bit faster. So you may be diagnosed with this when your your limbs are affected, mm-hmm. but over time, uh, your speech could mm-hmm. be affected, right? Yep. And then, you know, a lot of times this is misdiagnosed in the beginning because if someone comes in to their physician or into the hospital and they have slurred speech, they're going to think stroke, you know, or they may um, have changes in their voice and go to an ear, nose, and throat doctor and get a workup there. So sometimes diagnosis can be a little bit delayed as they're ruling out other options. So let's focus in on the communication. Mm-hmm. What what is happening? What what's happening in the body that affects the communication in someone who has ALS? So again, it's a it's a motor neuron disease. So it's affecting the actual motor ability. So you're going to have muscle weakness. So like I said before, their ability to know what they want to say or understand communication is typically with ALS intact. It's just that they don't have the muscle control or ability to formulate words. So So they would attempt to speak, but it would come out very slurred. Um, Some people say, you know, they've been told it sounds like I have drunken speech or people can't understand me, but I know what I want to say. Is it the muscles around the vocal cords or? It can be a little bit of everything. A lot of times when we think about speech, it's your articulator. So um, weakness in your lips, in your tongue, your, even your ability to um, move your jaw and keep your mouth closed or, or move the, the lower jaw. You can have weakness in the muscles in your throat um, and in, in your voice box as well. So it can affect your voice. So once these symptoms start happening to you, um, are they there for good or does, or do you have days where that's not so bad and days where it is worse? It will be affected by fatigue. So if you use those muscles a lot, you may find by the end of the day that, um, your muscles are, you, that your speech may not be quite as clear. Some people start out stronger earlier in the day and are, their speech is worse by the end of the day. So we talk a little bit about, um, energy conservation, you know, if you know you have a big event or something important or a phone call that you want to be on in the evening, try to use, you know, vocal rest and earlier in the day to conserve. But once those symptoms are there, they will 
they will stay. Um, Is there any predicting um, how quickly this disease progresses? No. For someone? No. No. And some people have onset of symptoms and it plateaus and stays like that for a while. And other people have kind of more of a steady uh, decline. And every time we see them, it's just a little bit worse. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Upstate speech-language pathologist Jenna Gardner about communication devices for people who have ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. So what is available for ALS patients who need help communicating? What's out there? There are a lot of options out there. Um, When I'm explaining this to patients, we talk about low-tech to high-tech options. So thinking about low-tech or low-technology you're dealing with just simple pen and paper writing options. Um, you could, we could develop a communication board, so they just would point to pictures or words. Um, so if you're if you're losing your ability to speak clearly, you might still be able to write. Mm-hmm. It just depends on how the disease has affected that individual. If they okay. don't have any limb onset yet, they can still use their hands, and they may be able to write or, again. Um, point to pictures using a whiteboard. We have something that we use called a boogie board in our clinic to offer patients, and it's a great option that it looks like a small tablet, and you write on it with a stylus, and then when you want to erase, you just push a button, and the message disappears. So it's a little easier than having to make sure you always have um, a fresh pad of paper or compared to a whiteboard dealing with the messy markers and erasers. So these, the battery life lasts for a very long time. They're really quite inexpensive in the grand scheme of things. So that's, and that's easier than sort of typing on a computer or something. Um, it, for some people, you know, if we have some depends on, you know, everybody's um, preference because we have some people that are very much not tech savvy and and don't want anything technological in their life to communicate and they prefer the writing option. So those are discussions that I have with patients when we're trying to figure out what will best meet their needs and what, what their goals are. Okay. And then we kind of go more to a middle ground, which I'll talk a little bit more in a minute about uh, what I call transitional devices. And then there are insurance-funded devices, and we call them speech-generating devices, and they're, they're wonderful, but insurance will only pay for one device every five years. So we have to think about what a person's needs may be across the course of the disease when we're factoring in what device to request through insurance. And at some point, if a patient loses their ability to use their hands to type or write to communicate, there are options to control these devices using your eye movement. But there are oftentimes the devices that accommodate eye gaze are larger and heavier. So somebody who maybe doesn't have any limb weakness to start out, they're not going to want to be carrying around a five pound device with them everywhere they go. It's not very portable. And that's where the inspiration for our voice library came from. It was that there are these transitional devices like iPads or some form of a tablet where you can put apps on there that are for communication. So you would type what you want to say and it speaks it. But like you've described, this is a progressive disease. And Mm -hmm. so you're having to sort of predict what a person might need. Mm -hmm. seems like it would be a little hard to do that sometimes. It is. And those are conversations that we have and we help guide patients through to make the best decision for them. Um, and if they want the the bigger device, we certainly go forward. There is the option. They do have insurance-funded smaller devices. But if during that five-year time span, they lose their ability to use their hands to access that device, it's a gamble that they may end up without an, a, a device that they could use. So using something more in this transitional um category is a nice option for someone before they may need the dedicated device. So tell me about the transitional device. What it, What is this? Yeah. So, um, I mean, as we all know, there there's app, there's an app for everything out there <laughs> these days. And <laughs> people have developed, um, there's so many different apps out there, but there are communication apps. And most of them are what we call text to speech. So you type in a message, you push a button and it speaks what you say. Some of the apps do have like pre-stored phrases on them or um, 
picture symbols, depending on what people need. So what we did, we actually applied for a Friend Indeed grant, and we received one, which was fantastic. Um, and that's through Upstate. That is. That's the Upstate Friend Indeed. And we were able to, we call it, we started a voice library because these devices, while they're wonderful, aren't covered by insurance. So it's an out-of-pocket expense. So if anyone's ever purchased a tablet, um, you know, it's, they can be pricey. And then you're looking at buying an, an app. And they the apps come, they're low cost. You know, some of them are free, up to a few hundred dollars for one of these. And so these are like iPad tablets? Yes. Or, well, what and, we purchased is an iPad, but you can you, get, um, there are, you know, different tablets you can purchase as okay. well. We just went more the iPad route because they're a little more secure and okay. longer lasting typically. So we purchased um, a bunch of the the tablets and then um, a really nice application called Predictable. And it has the the option to type a message and have it speak what you say. There's a lot of preset phrases. You can customize it, pick multiple voices. And it also has the option that you can write messages and it will pick up your handwriting and speak what you say. So for some of our folks that maybe prefer the writing over the typing, it's a pretty versatile app. That's got to be, if you're having trouble speaking, that's got to be eye-opening to be able to... Yeah. Um, and like I said, some a lot of people already have something in, in the techie world as far as a smartphone or a tablet of some sort. And if they do have that, I'll usually talk them through. Here are some apps, play around with them, you know, if they want to use their own devices. But we So if they have a phone already, they might be able to use this predictable app and try it out and see yeah. if it's... Yep. So this app only, I don't believe, goes on the phone. So some go on phones, some go on tablets, okay. some go on both. Um, so it, it all depends. And it Again, it's it's um, it's patient choice, really, what they want to do. But again, if they have the option to use one of their own devices and we can put something on there, great. Or if they want to purchase it to have. But some of our patients can't afford it. It's an extremely expensive disease. Um, if you think about all the things they're going to need throughout the course of the progression. So that's one thing to factor in. Or someone may not be sure if they really want to go this route. So these our little library that we've started is going to be such a nice option to let people try them out, see if they like them. Once we hand one out to somebody, it's theirs for as long as they need or want it. And then with the expectation that we'll get it back when they're, it's no longer needed so that we can keep um, reusing them for other people in the future. So the voice library, this is for upstate patients mm-hmm. who come to see you? At is our it? clinic, okay. yep. So it's one of the things, you know, when I consult with them and we talk about the changes that's going to happen with their communication, I walk them through all of the low-tech to high-tech communication choices that they have. And if they're interested in something like this and they don't have the resources to have one of their own or get one of their own, because again, this isn't something insurance will cover. They're not dedicated devices, and um, because they can they can be used for communication, but they're not meant for communication. Insurance won't cover them. Hopefully, someday that'll change. Um, but for now, this is what we're working with, and in the parameters of what insurance will cover. So it's a good alternative for them to be able to have access to something like this. Tablets are so much more socially acceptable too. So a lot of people find that they have a little bit easier time carrying around an iPad and using and being on it and using that out in public compared to a larger communication device. And what does it sound like? So I recorded a a message earlier. Good morning, Amber. How are you today? Oh, so you just type that in and and then it said it. And you you could type anything that you would like, Um, you know, and then if that's a phrase that you're going to use frequently, you can put it into your set phrases and have access to them. So they try to make it as efficient as possible so that you don't have to type everything. And then you can have different categories of my household needs, my bathroom needs, um, breakfast, lunch and dinner choices. Um, If you're going to your doctor's appointment, you can put all your questions in ahead of time. So that way you're not sitting there typing in the moment, you can just hit a button and it'll say, 
I want to talk about adjusting my medications or are there any new trials, clinical trials that I can participate in or, you know, these are the issues that I'm having. Um, so you can really kind of prepare. Um, I always say too, think about if you're going to get together with your friends or your family, think about the questions you want to ask. If you know they've just been on a vacation or gone somewhere or something exciting has happened, put all your questions that you have for them in there ahead of time so that way you can more efficiently communicate back and forth um, and not have to wait to type a message. Well, this is interesting. It seems like it might also be suitable for uh, people with other conditions. Absolutely. Um, So it's good to know the app Predictable. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you so much. My guest has been Jenna Gardner. She's a speech language pathologist at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Bruce Bennett is Professor Emeritus of English at Wells College, author of 10 books of poetry and over 30 chapbooks. Readers love his mastery of form, repetition, and rhyme. I will read two short poems, different in style and subject, yet each showing the poet at his most reflective, aware of time's passage, celebrating its many incarnations. First up is There's a Divinity. Lead, kindly light, though I may doubt some details, I have figured out I need your help to move ahead, or I'll be mired in dark instead. I need your help, though I may doubt. I cannot hope to figure out what I can't know, but know I need your help. Dear, kindly light, lead. Lead. And next is his poem, A Resurrection, which reminds us that spring will surely come. I thought the snowdrops all had died. They lay like corpses on their bed, their gallant bid to live denied. I thought the snowdrops all had died. I could have, though I wouldn't have, cried. The sudden freeze had left them dead. I thought the snowdrops all had died. They lay like corpses on their bed, hope gone, till later in the day, a miracle. They all were back and standing tall. I'm pleased to say the snowdrops later in the day stood tall, like flowers facing May. The season now was back on track. The snowdrops later in the day stood tall, shone bright. They all were back. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a special show dedicated to information about stroke. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.